Good morning. Good morning. I was just talking to somebody um, who was mentioning a, a fear of public speaking, and I was saying how, um, you know, what I've noticed in, in past Dharma talks with teachers, that they look around the room. <laughs> and one of the reasons I realize it's not just a, a thing to do, but actually um, for me, as I look around the room, instead of being just this huge blob of faces, right, the individuality um, of the humanity of each of you starts to come into focus, and that feels really um, encouraging and relaxing to see. So um, I feel very um, happy that so many of us are here today, and um, um, and I, I look forward to unpacking, um, for me, these, these deep questions I have uh, around how to respond to violence. And um, so this is, this is my way of working with the teachings, and I'm really open, and we're going to have some time at the end to hear other people's reflections and thoughts about this. So um, for a couple of weeks before I was going to talk, um, I, I was thinking, you know, what do I want to talk about? And um, we had just a few weeks before Sebene Selassie and I had, had um, done this feminine, sacred feminine workshop or undoing patriarchy um, for those who identify as feminine uh, in their spirit, in their bodies. And um, so part of what, what is an open question is this idea of um, different kinds of elemental qualities of our existence. And I was looking through uh, the Hidden Lamp book, and I saw somebody refer to something as fierce vulnerability. And I thought, this is an interesting um, way of speaking about the integration of what you could call the elemental feminine or elemental masculine, which has nothing to do with male bodies or female bodies, but qualities. And so this idea of vulnerability, which I'm, I'm describing as openness, as an openness, as a, a receptivity, as a... As a as a feeling body, and then fierceness as this idea of speaking from that place or exerting from that place, a fierceness, a courage. So as I was thinking about this, you know, and um, stalling <laughs> to do my talk as I do, um, so after my house was cleaned and I had nothing else to do, I, I took my second refuge, which is to, um, to turn on the, the social media and to go to different websites, and it was the uh, day after the Parkland shooting, a day or two after the Parkland shooting, and I, you know, as many of us did, we, we turned on and saw this video being passed around of Emma Gold Gonzalez, one of the survivors of the shooter, and, um, and then listened to these other teenage survivors and their families. And you could see in her body the, the, the aliveness of the violence that she had just witnessed and, and been through. And yet, through this, this fierce courage in her response, this ability to speak from that place. And I thought, this is what fierce vulnerability looks like.
it's this powerfully compelling voice of a heart broken open and the words that come pouring out from that heart, from the pain. So when I speak about vulnerability, it's such a loaded word. I almost, um, I almost uh, decided not to use it <laughs> because it has so many connotations that are negative. But I see vulnerability as a positive thing. And in this context, I'm talking about vulnerability as this um, capacity to be open to suffering, to not close down from it, to be open to it, both within ourselves, within our own bodies, and within the world, and to respond to it. And when we respond from this broken, open-heartedness, from the vulnerability of being um, affected, and even if we can just do that for a moment, in that moment, I would say we are released, we are, we are liberated, the way we talk about in our practice, from the harmful personal and collective delusion that we are separate and divided. So, so, there's the, so the proposition I'm making this morning is that um, being with the suffering, feeling the suffering, responding from the suffering, in a way, when we do that from our hearts, we can kind of open up and break out of this idea of, of, of um, separateness. So um, in Zen practice, I, I uh, believe that, in, that this practice, really, the way I frame it, and I think maybe many of us frame it here, is that um, we're training ourselves. We're training ourselves in our body and in our minds through the practice, through the teachings, to make it more likely that in a moment of suffering, in a moment of, 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 of threat, that we'll be able to um, we'll have an intention to and maybe some sort of capacity to respond to courageous connection instead of tightening into separation and division. That's, that's the bodhisattva training I think we're doing here. So I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about a few basic teachings of Buddhism that I have been using this week to try to hold the possibility of non-division in a moment when there is just the, just the habit patterns in all of us to begin to really um, divide into camps. And these teachings are not things we just study in the books, but literally we take them up as koans or ideas and reminders to practice with in these particular moments. So they're things we wake up to, and we wake up to them by practicing them, even if we don't quite really believe that or our our minds and bodies don't believe this is possible or don't see the world this way. So, so the first teaching, and I think many of you have maybe heard this. Some of you might be here for the first time and haven't heard this. Um, that first teaching is that there is no fixed, separate, permanent reality to anything that things arise and fall away dependent upon conditions. 
And this is a profound teaching. You know, it means that any fixed view we hold on to is out of alignment with the reality of how things work. And that the, that one condition, one particular condition is then is, um, is in dynamic interaction with everything else. So we don't even know how a condition is influencing and being influenced by all the other conditions. And every point of connection influences that whole. So there's nothing that we think, say, do, that happens that does not have an influence, a reverberating influence on the world. And a dependent co-origination says they don't always have the same influence at the same moment. Some things might be more impactful and affect the whole in a particular way, depending on conditions. And the other teaching that I think is so important is that we, too, are not fixed, separate entities. That we also, in a way, are just an arising of conditions in a particular moment. I find that encouraging. <laughs> I think from the position of our, of our fixed views, it's very threatening. Um, but that means that moment by moment, we are creating who we are by the way we think, by the way we, by the way we act. And although you could say from one perspective it sounds a little um, funny that we're just a bundle of habit patterns, all of us, from one perspective. And these habit patterns can feel like they have very deep neurological grooves, you know, where people say, this is just how I am, you know. We are not. We can change those habit patterns, and we can change circumstances, and we can change conditions, no matter how entrenched they are, for good. And that that's the case for the world, too. That we can change the habit patterns of the world, no matter how entrenched, for good. And that the world can change for the better, if enough helpful conditions are available. And I'm holding on to this teaching very, very much right now, because it can feel completely overwhelming and daunting the configuration of habit patterns that we find ourselves in, in in this country right at this moment. You know, a lot of people, a lot of pundits, a lot of folks have been looking at this shooting of these 17 children, these 17 young adults, and saying, who's to blame? What are the conditions? What is this about? And really grabbing onto them and almost using them as hammers against each other. You know, so we can talk about and imagine some of the conditions that have led for the possibility of this kind of violence. And I think it's an important exploration to do. But to me, what struck my imagination and, and gave me this feeling of um, hopefulness is to try to imagine a few of the conditions that created this courageous response from these teenagers and from, from so many others. So, for example, 
And again, they're myriad. We don't know what impact any one particular condition has, but I think it is helpful to um, be boosted by the idea of impact, right? So, for example, all the other broken-hearted, brave voices that have mobilized for action like Black Lives Matter, where people have said no more to black children and adults being senselessly victimized and shot without any consequences <laughs> or without any institutional challenges in response. So even when you see those kids laying down in front of the um, White, Ho White House, right, kind of reminds you, yes, you know, maybe they were they were influenced in a positive way by other people taking courageous action. When, we, when I listened to those kids, I could hear the encouragement of those teachers and parents, you know, who were, who were seeming, who, who, who I imagine positively influenced those kids to say, listen to their voice, have them speak about what's going on, have them think about it, engage with it, and encourage them to stand up, right? So, you know, other conditions, the collective frustration of not being heard. And um, I was reading about and, and just discovered naively, like, based on all these other previous shootings and all these other gone violent situations, there are many communities who have already mobilized. And when this shooting happened, they were able to kind of use that mobilization of efforts to take action, you know? <laughs> like we were trying to do in our, in our Buddhist Action Collective the other day, like mobilize to be ready to respond and be a, a source and a force for good, for non-harming. And so the world works in these mysterious, interwoven ways that we can't know. And we are not separate, and we have impact on each other. And we, yet most of us do not live our lives that way. We don't live from this teaching of non-separation. I don't. We don't really relax into this mystery and humility and um, the possibilities of the fact that we have quite a strong impact and that we are connected to everything else. So mostly the way we operate in this world, at least I do, is um, we operate from a sense of a separate self. And when we operate from a sense of a separate self, experience takes on the feeling of threat. So we don't feel open, we feel threatened. We feel vulnerable to anything that arises within us or between us that threatens that sense of our ideas, our vision, even our hopes for what is possible and what we think is necessary to feel secure in the world. So before I started practicing, I realized everything that challenged me felt like a threat. I wouldn't have called it like, you know, um, separation. I just would have called it insecurity. <laughs> you know, or anxiousness. 
Um, I didn't see the futility and the harm that I caused when I tried to control my environment and other people. My heart and mind was not free to respond because I, I came from a position of fear. So, um, so in Buddhism, we say the, the most primary condition for the creation of harm is the idea of, of separate selves, self and other, as not one. So that we contract against the open engagement with each other. And I think this is, you could say, pretty, I think I could say pretty comfortably that this is the reality of our social and political condition right now. We have never, it's just such polarization, such holding to ideas. And I don't mean to suggest that at the beginning of practice we're at one and, you know, 20 years in we're at 10 and no separation or no feeling of interconnectedness at the beginning, that um, we all have had these experiences either in a moment or hopefully many moments where that feeling of threat washes away and we feel connected and loved and, and a sense of possibility. In fact, we believe this to be actually our true nature in the Mahayana tradition, this possibility of Buddha nature, which is that... Um, we are, um, we are already loving connection. And this is what it means when we chant the Heart Sutra, and it says, no fear far beyond all inverted views. So we don't know this, but we practice it, and practice it moment after moment. And we practice it in our sanghas. When somebody comes up to us and does something that's threatening or harmful, um, we like hold on, you know, and try to open up and soften around that impulse, that reflective impulse of us to tighten up and harden and make that an other that we have to reject in exile. And we do this in our lives, we do this in our relationships. And the part of the the main, to me, training of this practice is that um, when we, ex- we, we sit down on the cushion and we experience all the stuck places, the places where we will not open or where we close back down, and then all the ways we justify that to ourselves. Very good reasons to justify it. But as we practice, hopefully we can let in more complexity, more contrast, more perspectives, more views. We can start to learn to be a little more courageous and fierce when we feel threatened. And so this has really been put to the test for me this week as I, as I looked at the news. And um, I noticed my tendency to respond to those opposed to gun control, the NRA, conservative politicians and media, and even um, my own relatives. I, I, I felt them as a threat. I... I do see them. I do see the NRA. I do see people who vote against gun control as a significant condition for the harm. I do. I do believe and view domination and oppression from patriarchy, from capitalism, from racism, as having a negative 
influential impact on what's happening right now. I do believe that. So, believing this to be so, those are the ways that I interpret causes and conditions. How do I reconcile those positions with this teaching of non-separation and interconnectedness? That's the question, yes? (laughs) How do we not rigidify those positions and exile all the beliefs and all the peoples who disagree with my analysis of what the threat is? How do we not weaponize our beliefs? Reenacting the violence I'm committed to renouncing. And how do we trust life when life is so painful and so violent? And to me, this is the deepest question or the hardest challenge of the practice for me right now, which is how do we not close our heart to suffering when it expresses itself as domination? and dismissal of the vulnerable. So the proposition is that those people who oppose us, who threaten us, are also suffering. And their suffering is linked to our suffering. And our liberation is linked to their liberation. And I really want to name this, that that protective stance, that that feeling of threat does come out of real conditions. It's born out of ways we've been responded to and others in harmful and violent ways. So at Brooklyn Zen Center, we take as a, as a, a focus of practice to look at the way society has conditioned us. Oh, I just got louder. Yes, this is an important point. <laughs> and how we condition, how we are conditioned by things like our position, our social positions in terms of race, in terms of class, in terms of gender, how these experiences have shaped us and limited us because of the way we've been responded to in those embodiments. So last um, couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned, uh, 30 of us, 30 people who identified as feminine in spirit came together to explore how patriarchy has affected our experience in the world and what it means to reclaim more of the fullness of who we are. And it was a powerful weekend, and um, to me, we just reinforced the, um, the way that we uh, work with suffering here. So one of the things is we started to name the ways, tried to, t- to articulate the ways that we have been um, conditioned by uh, violent patriarchal messages about the feminine in us. And I think this happens for, again, I just want to keep saying it does happen. The, the patriarchal violence happens for male bodies as well as, as female bodies or bodies who don't identify as either. So what we did was we said, we, we put up you know, one of those big pieces of white paper, you know, really huge. We said, okay, let's start naming what are some names, what are some expressions of the distorted, diminished um, feminine that we've experienced? 30 people start popcorning. Fill up one big sheet of paper. The words kept pouring out. Second piece of paper. Really painful words. Third piece of paper. Fourth piece of paper. Waiting for all of that to come out. 
What else? What else? What else? What other words? What other experiences? So feeling into the pain of that, naming it, grieving it together, really um, allowed something of that isolation and contraction and pain to diminish. By naming it, by standing up and fiercely naming it, it, it releases by doing it together. And then we can begin to reclaim something that had been um, cut off. So um, according to Buddhist teachings, our intentions in each moment have a powerful moral influence on ourselves and the world. So I I keep wanting to say that because um, we take this as a great responsibility that if we want to be a force for good of the world, if we don't want to harm, the first place we go to is our own actions. And that in traditional Buddhist teachings, even thoughts have impact. They create conditions. You know, if I, I keep thinking how annoying another person is, right? And I keep bringing up how have they harmed me? How have they harmed me? How are they evil? How are they stupid? How don't they get it? How ignorant they are? That causes, that causes something to happen in my body and then creates the conditions for violence. So even if our intention was not to harm, we don't get, we don't get um, and even if we didn't know our intention or didn't know our impact, we still face the consequences of them. That They still have consequences. And when we set up this intention to not harm in our practice, this is what we ask ourselves to do, and when the folks taking the precepts, so many of us now, those precepts ask us to pay deeper attention and get more ethically sensitive to to harm. And as we do that, we, we get sensitized to it. We feel it more. And in a way, you could say our suffering increases because what we could before do without even thinking about it, I think it had tremendous suffering. But in a way, it's now we feel it so quickly, you know? I mean, for me, the way it manifests, um, and I've been studying the precepts for 20 years, and it was only less than a year ago that um, something changed in my body and my heart, and I couldn't eat meat anymore. I just couldn't. And that's not to judge anyone who eats meat, but I just couldn't do it. It was just like I could, I, something happened, and that no longer felt okay for me. So, so this sensitivity allows us to take more responsibility and allows me to open up to more of the conditions that keep me from being fierce and vulnerable. So I can open up to the vulnerability of, of, of the diminished, distorted feminine in me um, based on a kind of toxic patriarchy. For me, this is the way I practice with this, is doing this. And I have spoken to so many um, feminine beings in our center that say, I can't speak. My voice is cut off. I, I'm, I, I don't know how to show up fully. I want to. And, uh, and I'm afraid. 
So this is what we open up to and, and find some courage to work with. Or for, for many masculine beings that I work with in my practice and hear the, the violence of having their um, feelings be diminished or dismissed or, um, or their sensitivity crushed. So we wake up to that in, our, in the Undoing Whiteness group. And um, I try to open up to the pain and responsibility of being a white body in a society where white bodies have been violent and destructive to non-white bodies for centuries. And in a way, it's like we're, I take the responsibility up of, of not just intellectually saying, oh, yes, this is not right, but deeply processing the collective trauma of, of being um, in this society around race. So when we practice, we, we stop cutting ourselves off from the feedback loop of life. You could say. Um, We vow to be a bodhisattva. That these young people and so many others that have stepped bravely into those spaces open up a kind of possibility that comes from the pain and the trauma, that they can speak from that place and actually have more of a impact, you know, that we can feel that authenticity of their response. And so I think part of our work here is not, you know, we we talk about Buddhism being um, about quietude or the concern that Buddhism is about quietude. And we do need to kind of be very, we need to be silent. We need to listen. We need to deeply listen to ourselves and to others. But then I think that there is this uh, also request in the Bodhisattva vow to start to stand up and speak. Bell Hooks writes, The heart of justice is truth-telling, seeing ourselves in the world the way it is rather than the way we want it to be, as best we can because we can never really know the whole truth. But we can take a vow to step up and name our truth in the moment, which is always changing, and show up as fully as we can with the sensitivity for how difficult it is and not in a violent way where we override what we need to do. And we need to speak fully from our own position because with the idea of interconnectedness, each voice allows the whole to be more fully known. That every single voice here and in this country has a, a right to speak. And from that, hopefully we know the whole more fully and we can respond in a skillful way. So we, 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 we acknowledge our limitations. We remember that we can't ever see the whole. But we remember we are always vulnerable. Some are more vulnerable than others in very real ways. But we're always vulnerable to our pain and suffering, and we're always vulnerable to the pain and suffering of others. And our body knows this suffering, whether our minds go crazy trying to cut ourselves off from it or not. So it's our choice. We're going to feel it, or we're going to defend against it. That just actually makes us vulnerable to more suffering. 
So can we open up to it and speak from that place, from that relationship? So that requires us to be still and let ourselves feel the complexity of the violence in this society. It's very complex, many conditions. It's not going to be, unfortunately, solved if we get rid of all the guns. I think it's a good first step, but... um, So it's hard to feel the suffering of those 17 murdered children and all the other children. It's hard to feel the suffering of Emma Gonzalez and the other survivors and their families. But in a way, that is nothing compared to feeling the suffering of the head of the NRA and other people who actually denigrate the heartfelt expression of those who are vulnerable. And what happens when that happens, it happens inside of me. When, when the head of the NRE speaks, it touches that part of ourselves where we want to dominate, <laughs> you know? where we want to crush and destroy. We want, in this violent expression, to get them out. However, if we do that, we just add to our shared social violent karma. And this is not an appeal to do nothing. This is actually an appeal to show up. And, you know, I I watched those kids, and and as they were speaking, I thought, they're going to be attacked. It's going to happen. Well, I I first felt (laughs) so hopeful that nobody could attack these kids. This is incredible. How could you not just respond with, with this feeling of, yes, I want to be of help. I want to protect and defend you, you know, and join you. Thank you. And yet, of course, you know, that may have brought up a threat in another person around something's getting taken away as a result of that. So we do want to do things, you know. um, I think next month, March 24th, we just talked about there'll be a, a, a... a gun violent, uh, a, a response to the gun violence rally in New York City on Saturday morning. And so I, I, I'm saying right here, you know, I want to go to that rally and, and just hope we can all as a community put our bodies in places where we can be heard. But how do we do that? How do we show up? How do we argue? How do we disagree? How do I speak to my relatives in a way in which they are not um, exiled from my heart? You know, where I hold both of that, hold that idea. So just to end, um, Thomas Merton says, Love is our true destiny. We do not find the meaning of life by ourselves alone. We find it with one another. And in, in this practice, the Bodhisattva vow, really the ultimate manifestation of love is finding it with all others. So this is asking quite a lot of us. I don't know how to do it. This is a, I have moments of it. Um, I'm practicing this. 
and I just, um, I, I just can't, it just makes sense to me. I can't imagine anything else that can help change these conditions than us kind of fiercely standing up for love. Not from a righteous place, but from a tender-hearted place of brokenheartedness. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.